My name is Meg Bussey. I'm with the Roddenberry Foundation. I'm so pleased to see you all today and to be joining in conversation with you all. Thank you so much for taking time away. I know that there's so much going on and it feels a bit tricky to find those moments to take time away for self-care. And yet that seems even more essential these days. Given everything that is going on, I'd love to take a moment of silence to remember the lives lost to covid and also the incidents of state-sponsored violence that are all around the world here in the U.S., most recently in Nigeria, um, to take a moment and honor those lives lost and put on the line. Thank you. It seems in 2020, these small moments of solidarity and peace and joy that we can find, whether it's on calls like these or in our own lives, wherever we find them are even more essential, which which obviously brings us to today's topic of self-care and wellness. We're in our third year of the Roddenberry Fellowship. We've had just spectacular folks we've gotten to work with over the past couple of years. And self-care and wellness have been on the forefront of topics of conversation since the very beginning. Obviously, 2020 has increased the stresses and strains that not only individuals are feeling, but their communities are experiencing. And so I'm thrilled to be able to hear from Evelise Andino, Mia Birdsong, and Ian Robertson about their thinking and their experiences with finding balance and thinking through what self-care and wellness looks like. Thank you for joining in with that. Let me turn it over to Tanya. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you for officially opening today's webinar. It's really such a privilege to share this space with you and to create room for dialogue on this very critical topic. I hope you know me. I'm Tanya. I'm from the Atlantic Institute. And I'm privileged to moderate today's webinar on radical self-care for leaders. Many of you would agree it's been an exhausting year. Not only has the virus put many communities to the brink of survival, so too the numerous episodes of state violence seen across the world as citizens lobby for a range of rights. As leaders working for social justice in this context, sustaining our own energy and that of the communities we belong to and serve is really critical. So today, our amazing keynotes will help us explore the ways in which self-care is not only essential, but also radical for social change at large. It's my honor now to introduce the first of our keynotes expounding on this topic, Professor Ian Robertson. Professor Ian Robertson is a professor emeritus of psychology at Trinity College Dublin and was the founding director of Trinity College Institute of Neuroscience, as well as dean of research of Trinity College. Ian is also the co-director of GBHI, which is home to the Atlantic Fellows for Equity in Brain Health Program, together with the University of California, San Francisco. He is widely recognized as one of the world's leading researchers in neuroscience. Ian is also a best-selling author and writer with a forthcoming book, How Confidence Works, New Science of Self-Belief and Why Some People Learn It and Others Don't. Really honored to have you, Ian. So I invite you now to deliver your reflections on the topic at hand today. Over to you. Thank you very much, Tanya. I really am grateful for this privilege of speaking to you all. And thank you to Evie and the Atlantic Institute for hosting this very interesting seminar. So I was asked to talk about self-care for leaders and the title was Radical Self-Care. So I'm going to start off with actually focusing on anger because as we've heard, just in the last introductions, there's not a lot to be angry about in the world. So I want to focus on anger as an emotion. And then through our discussions of that emotion, I'd like to talk more generally about self-care and how to keep ourselves emotionally on balance as much as possible in a world where there's so much to anger us. 
so much injustice. I'd like to actually start with an exercise. I'd like you to think of something that's making you angry at this moment. In fact, I'd like you to close your eyes and see what it feels like just to, to focus on that, to do an experiment on yourself, to analyze the feelings of anger and the thoughts. So if you could just take about 30 seconds to do that, I'll do the same. Ask yourself, what were the feelings in your body and in your mind? What were the feelings of anger? What's the phenomenology of anger? Did you have any of these? Faster heart rate, sweaty skin, dry mouth, churning stomach, tense. I had them. I won't say what I was angry about, but it's something a lot of people in the world are angry about. But I had all of these things. So these are all symptoms, yes, of anger. But the exact same symptoms are symptoms of anxiety. In fact, they're also symptoms of excitement. In fact, they are non-specific preparation by our bodies and brains to take action. Here's the puzzle. If all these emotions have the same symptoms, how do we know what emotion we're experiencing? How do we know we're angry? How do we know we're anxious? How do we know we're excited? The symptoms are the same. These are all the body and the brain's preparation to act. It's a non-specific energy that we can harness to run away, to fight, to celebrate. But we only do these things due to our interpretation of these non-specific arousal symptoms. It's the context that creates the emotion, not the basic physiology of the emotion itself. So this has really important implications. Without a clear human target, because remember, anger is an interpersonal emotion. It's an emotion that's between people. Without a clear target, it needn't be a single person, it can be a group, and a clear demand for something from that target, anger can very easily, because it depends on context, become anxiety and vice versa. In these circumstances, anger and anxiety can become a toxic, corrosive mix that actually corrode the vessel, you, that holds them. So here's my exercise again. I want you to go back and I would like you to get yourself to think of that same thing you thought about before, the thing that's making you're angry and try and summon up these feelings again. And I'd like you to ask yourself, does your anger have a clear target? And do you have a clear request or demand of this target? In other words, is your anger being harnessed as a potent form of energy to make it more likely that the situation that's making you angry will be changed? Now, if we were together in a room, I'd be asking you all to say how many of you found yourself in a position that you're feeling angry, but that anger is maybe general or maybe against too amorphous a group, a system, for it actually to have a clear target against which you can negotiate using the energy of your anger and the clear request of that group. Because if you manage to create that clear target and that clear request, then you will get that pure, fiery energy that Maya Angelou talks about. And that is a powerful, powerful motivator, a powerful energizer. And also in the right ways, it's an antidepressant. It's an anti-anxiety drug. That anger is an empowering emotion if it has a clear target and a clear request of that target. But anger is diffuse. Say, for instance, people who feel a non-specific anger about the unfairness of a system or the unfairness of life. Unfairness isn't a target. And that anger can really corrode the vessel that holds it and can multiply anxiety. And there's good evidence of this, of people who have been in terrible accidents, road accidents, and post-traumatic stress anxiety disorder, for instance, 
Some people feel angry about what's happened to them, feel it's not fair. They feel angry about the damage that's been done to them. Unfortunately, people who have the combination of the anxiety of stress disorder and the anger, rather than on average getting better over time, over the years, their emotional state tends to worsen because the anger and the anxiety mix with each other and reinforce each other. Something makes them angry, and because the symptoms are the same, that creates anxiety. Or they become anxious at something, and that then triggers the emotion of anger, and you're getting this self-reinforcing cycle. Anger is a powerful, powerful tool for leaders like you wanting to change things. But you need to harness it and control it and use the energy of it. So that was my second exercise. Is your anger morphing to anxiety sometimes? Ask yourself that question. Maybe not tonight, then maybe not with time. But ask yourself that the next time you're feeling angry, the extent to which you're properly using that negotiation tool. Maybe not just on your own, maybe as a group, as a movement, by all means. So now we all have experienced huge change in the world in the last nine months because of COVID. And then there's many other changes that have happened all over the world, things that we were hearing about earlier. So we have to learn to ride change and particularly to ride out, to maintain our own health, our physical and mental health, and the two are connected, to self-care, to look after ourselves so that we can be properly angry in a useful way, agents for change. And we have fortunately at our disposal in our brains, the most complex entity in the known universe, the capacity to harness the complexity of our brains and to use it in a way that we can be more effective agents for change. But that's only possible if we look after ourselves. So let me just do another little exercise here. I'd like you to close your eyes. And I just want you to take in a long, slow breath from the count of four and out to the count of six. I'll do that as well. Now, most of you would have felt a little bit different after doing that breathing than before. And the reason for this is this part of your brain here, deep in the middle of your brain called the locus ceruleus, is the only source of a critical chemical messenger in the brain called norepinephrine in America or noradrenaline in Europe and the rest of the world. It's a critical chemical messenger that's activated when we're under stress or when this system we were talking about, this arousal system, is activated. So in any strong emotion, we have a lot of noradrenaline for pressure to work, if we're feeling overwhelmed, our brain pumps this stuff all around our brain. Now, here's a remarkable thing about the locus ceruleus here, the little red sliver of tissue here. It is chemosensitive, meaning it's sensitive to how much carbon dioxide is in your blood. And the amount of carbon dioxide in your blood goes up and down as you breathe in and out. And if you slow your breathing the way you did there, you immediately reduce the firing of the locus ceruleus and reduce the cascade of noradrenaline in your brain, which has profound effects in your brain. The, the effects are more rapid and more precise and more side effect free than any pharmaceutical you could take. So you can actually physiologically, chemically change your brain by slowing your breathing. Using your breath is an incredibly powerful means of self-care, and you can do it many times a day. That's my tip here. Use your breath to change your brain. If you're out campaigning, if you're out trying to persuade policymakers to change, if you're out politically activated and if you're feeling angry and frustrated by the lack of change, a lot of us unconsciously start to breathe in a different way. We breathe shallower and faster. 
or some of us even hold our breath unconsciously. What that does is to change the chemistry of your blood, which increases the firing of the locus ceruleus and causes a cascade of extra noradrenaline in our brain. And when we have too much of that stuff in our brain, we can't think as clearly. We get this increase in symptoms of arousal, of anxiety, which can morph into anger. That beating heart, the sympathetic autonomic nervous system goes into overdrive. So if we can learn to control our breathing, we can learn to control these symptoms and we can be better able to harness them for healthy purposes, righteous anger, for instance, rather than being paralyzed by anxiety. Because this is what happens in a number of the chemical messengers in the brain. That too little, for instance, at four o'clock in the morning when we haven't had much sleep, too little of the stuff, our brain does not perform properly. And when we're stressed or overwhelmed or too much demands made on us or too angry, then we have too much of the stuff. And that also makes it difficult to think clearly. So there's a sweet spot in the middle, a certain degree of arousal that we need and properly harnessed anger, for example, among other emotions, or slowing our breathing can get us nearer the sweet spot where we think clearly and act well. Being an activist, being a leader, can sometimes feel as if you're wading through mud. One thing merges into another. You can't see progress. In the course of your day, every time you change activity, you go from writing that email to making that phone call, for example. Take just 20 seconds to press a reset switch in your brain by doing that slow breathing. You can even do it in the middle of a meeting. Someone has just said something that really annoys you. Before you respond, do the breath because you're changing the chemistry of your brain you're bringing yourself nearer the sweet spot, you'll be better able to make the best kind of response to that thing that made you angry or annoyed in the meeting. Similarly, if you feel anxious about something, take 20 seconds to do that. Or if you're just busy and one thing after another, take the 20 seconds because you will benefit from that. Because here's what's happening in the brain. When we are in a threat mindset, when we're focused on the things that make us fearful, that biases our attention systems of our brain and our memory systems to notice evidence to support the threat and memories that support it, past failures, past disasters. If we can use the power of our mind to jujitsu these non-specific arousal symptoms from one emotion, fear, to another one, challenge, and anger against a specific person with a specific request, an energizing challenge, which will bring us nearer the sweet spot and allow us to be more effective in what we're aiming at doing. And that acts out in the brain. We have two basic systems, approach and avoidance, going forward and anticipating success and retreating in the threat of failure. These two systems, we need them both, but sometimes one can become dominant over the other in political life as well as everywhere else. So it's very important that we learn if we're in a state of fear or high stress we can end up the right side of the brain being so captured by negative attention to negative threat signs and past memories of negative things that we can end up not being able to act very effectively and not even being able to envisage the possibility of success. If you can use your breathing and other methods I can tell you about another time if you want, but if you can use your breathing to diminish that sense of threat and fear, to reduce the arousal, you will allow the approach side of the brain, the approach system, the optimistic reward-seeking system of the brain to help energize you. And I have to say that proper anger, the evidence is quite clear, the scientific evidence, it used to be thought that anger was a negative emotion linked with fear. But actually, properly conceived of anger 
as of Maya Angelou and Aristotle, actually is part of the reward approach system. And that has antidepressant qualities, as I said before, and anti-anxiety qualities. So what you can do when you next feel these non-specific symptoms, the beating heart, the dry mouth, the tense muscles, the churning stomach, maybe just before you have to do a very difficult presentation or give a difficult speech, say out loud to yourself, I feel excited. Because there's clear research evidence showing that using the power of the mind to change the context using language, you can transform one emotion, fear, to another, exhilaration, being up for the challenge. Setting and achieving small goals in the course of a day, structuring your time, you may not be able to change the behavior of these policymakers who are causing the anguish you perceive them to be doing. But if you can set intermediate goals that you can set for yourself and achieve, not only will that take you nearer what it is you're aiming to do, but it will actually benefit your self-care. Because achieving small goals, small successes that stretch you a little bit, but they're not too difficult, that they're unobtainable, actually act in a different neurotransmitter system in the brain, the dopamine system. And they act as natural antidepressants. Every time you structure your time to achieve a success, that lifts your mood. So here's my final tip for you. Contrive small successes for yourself as an incredible instrument of self-care on your way to achieving the big ones. Thank you very much. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ian. I think the nugget there is self-care is self-reflection, a self-check-in. And I really value the deep dive you did around anger, checking in with our anger. And is it useful anger or is it causing us anxiety or pain or is it being directed somewhere that can actually make a change? And also the breathing. I definitely did the exercise and I felt so much better doing that. So some really practical tools there, which we're grateful to have, Ian. So thank you. Turning over now, it's such a privilege to introduce our next keynote with Ivelise Andino. Ivelise is an Afro-Latina health equity innovator born and raised in the Bronx in New York. She's the founder and CEO of Radical Health, the first Latina-owned and operated benefit corp in New York City, and a commissioner on the New York City Commission on Gender Equity. Through Radical Health, Ivelise is committed to the task of transforming healthcare by facilitating health literacy and self-advocacy, as well as forging a relationship between meaningful face-to-face conversations and with cutting-edge technology. Ivelise also joins us as a 2019 Roddenberry Fellow. Ivelise, it's so fantastic to have you with us today. So excited to hear your remarks on this topic. So over to you. Thank you all so much. I just love being with people and in conversation. So we're here about self-care. So what does self-care mean to you? Or what do you think about when you hear the word self-care? And I'll read out some of the responses. So some rest, some quiet time, taking time for yourself, ease, pleasure, rest, nature, Netflix. Oh, guilty. Time in nature, naps, time to breathe, sitting around a fire, boundaries, having a clear mind, no work stuff, prayer, meditation, care and attention, admitting it's okay to focus on myself for a moment, diet, exercise, leisure, love, passion, continuous learning and challenge. Yeah. A long, hot bath, a long walk. Yes, yes, yes. Can I ask a part two to this? What is radical self-care? Is there a difference? Is it the same or is there something else? All right. So radical self-care is 
actually doing self-care, doing those more consciously and more often, doing the care instead of the pressing work, okay, doing the things you need to stay engaged in the hard stuff, radical equals longer term, not just the short, in the moment acts, so able to give up or let go of the priorities for self, taking care even when it's busy, not just when it's easy, when you need it to continue to function, huh? So it sounds like making it as important as other work-life tasks. Okay, so self-care sounds like all the activities we talked about, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, radical self-care sounds like you actually are doing it. Is that what I'm getting here? Actually doing the things or taking the time. Yeah, okay. So it sounds like, and I'm laughing just because I'll share in a moment why I'm laughing, but okay. So all self-care is radical, amen. So it sounds like radical self-care sounds a little bit more of like actually doing it or prioritizing the care or the activities or the things that we talked about before, maybe over our existing work. I'll just share my own story with you. My bio is very fancy. I grew up in the Bronx, but the reality is I didn't know what self-care was. That is a very new term in my world, a very new term ending in the world world. In fact, when I hear about self-care, my immediate thought is like, oh yeah, a massage and bath salts. I mean, a manicure, I'm a mom, I have a five-year-old and yeah, self-care is anything that doesn't involve cooking or cleaning or doing anything for anyone else. In fact, it's probably me just laying in bed. And so growing up, I had no idea what self-care was. And I think even as an adult, didn't really know what that was. But as I've gotten into this work, right, I think this trend and theme has come up a lot more. And we have a whole bunch of brilliant folks on the line here to talk about this. And as I was recalling and thinking about this, I was like, oh, well, when did I first need self-care? So for y'all here, when did you first realize that you wanted or needed self-care? When was the first time you said, hmm, like, actually, I need to do some self-care? After a very difficult project, we hit 40. When my kid was a few years old and I realized so much of my energy was on her. When I realized I wasn't treating others with the respect that they deserve. Low points, same here. Other folks didn't know what self-care was. Third child and a full-time job, yeah. Also needed self-care when I felt overwhelmed and things weren't working out. I realized going to the dentist was relaxing when I felt like there's nothing like perfection. <laughs> also when stomach bleeding, right? So like there's some physical symptoms, right? Mental, like, okay, like we've hit the wall now and now we need self-care. Yep, some chronic illness. So it sounds like there's also like a point, right? You hit your bursting point and that's when we're like, okay, we need some of this. And so like all of you, I think it took me, I'm probably a little more hard-headed in that it took me a lot longer to realize I needed self-care. The truth is, I think I was an activist Long before I even knew the word activist or what it meant, I really believe that in order to do the work, for me, the fight for justice was a direct response to all the injustice I had seen and witnessed and experienced. And so at a really young age, I experienced a lot of things that I just knew weren't right. And so as I kind of grew up, I was like, okay, I'm going to fight to change this. And my first battle, we can say, was in corporate America, because I was like, what I'm going to do today is I'm actually going to make a lot of money so that my home can be stable and my life can be together. And that way, I don't have to worry about the rest of it. That was my first fight. I learned really quickly there that I was killing myself at work, literally going to work, 
My mom was really sick at home with cancer. And I found myself choosing my job and writing reports and Excel sheets over being at home with my mom, something that I deeply regret. But it was in that moment that I didn't really learn the lesson of self-care. I just knew that, oh, wow, like I need to understand like what is important. And that was my first lesson in that I, as a person, need to be more connected to my family and I need to prioritize what's important. I didn't really learn the self-care there because I was like, okay, I know what it is to burn out. I know what it is to work really hard. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'll still work really hard, but I want to make sure to prioritize family and show up for the people that are important. So moved along in my journey, did a lot of great things, had a kid. (laughs) And that I think is where I was like, okay, I can do all of these things. My family is the most important thing to me. So I'm going to show up and my community is super important. So I'm going to start to change the world. And I did all of that, I think, pretty well-ish. At this time, I prioritized more of what I would call the manicures and the pedicures and the time away. And that was a little bit of care for myself. And it wasn't until I started Radical Health about five years ago. And it wasn't until I found myself living and working in my community, hands in, with no reprieve, that I was like, oh, this is real. And this is not sustainable. And it's not sustainable because I'm continuously giving as an act of service, as an act of revolution. I'm changing the world. I'm radical. We're changing the world. I think often one of my favorite poems is from Asada Shakur, and it is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love each other and support each other. We have nothing to lose but our chains. And that is real. However, there's a piece in that, that I can't do any of that if I have nothing. And what I do have to lose is myself. So this journey, it's a real thing for me today. So even being here talking about it, I don't got it all together. I'm still learning what it is to care for myself. Shirley Johnson says, her quote is, self-care is the practice of calling your energy back to yourself. Self-care is the practice of calling your energy back to yourself. And what I realized was in all of the things that I had been doing in all of my roles, whether it was as a mom, as a partner, as a founder, as an activist, as a family member, my sister, I valued my work in terms of purpose. I valued my work in terms of impact. And we all love a good metric and an ROI for those grant reports. But that's how I even valued myself on what I can do and what I can give. And the challenge that I would offer is we tend to measure our work in purpose, but can we measure ourselves in pleasure, in the things that bring us life, in the things that bring us joy? Adrienne Marie Brown has a beautiful book called Pleasure Activism. And the first time I read it, in the beginning, she talks about, like, where did you learn pleasure? And she talked about her family and when was the first time you knew to experience the touch of fine materials? I just remember my aunt having really nice sheets and really nice clothes and really nice shoes and wondering, when did I like stop paying attention to the things that I enjoyed? When was the first time I noticed it? And when did I stop even taking pleasure in work, pleasure in being with my kid, pleasure in being with friends? So as we think about self-care, how are we measuring ourself in the things that bring us joy and not just in what we can give or the moves that we can make or the waves that we can crash. And I say this among comrades, right? We're all trying to change the world. There is incredible injustice, but an injustice against ourselves is ignoring and neglecting ourselves. 
what I was thinking of when I was preparing this was one of the tools that I love to use as a measure for finding pleasure or a measure just even for checking in. I often do a check-in. And the one that I love that I offer and I share with you today is how are you feeling mentally? How are you feeling physically? And how are you feeling spiritually? What is your body saying? How are you feeling? Mentally, how are you feeling? Spiritually, how do you feel? What do you feel? You can often take that another step further. And my therapist likes to say, where do you feel that? And as Ian had kind of alluded, right, taking the moments to slow your breathing, taking the moment to feel, to identify, identify even the buckets and the areas of your life, that check-in could, you know, communally, how do you feel? Using that as a tool for yourself, as leaders, we either have colleagues or comrades or staff or folks that we're working with. I use it to check in with my team at least once a week, if not before every call, we'll have a different check-in. And I use it to share vulnerably, which I think brings me to my final thought. And these are all thoughts. We are incredibly disconnected. We are using technology in a way that I don't know that our souls and our hearts were designed for. But for me, my healing and my self-care has been in not just showing up for my community, but allowing my community to show up for me. And I will say that that is probably the hardest thing I have to do. I talked earlier about doing this justice work because I've seen injustice. I lead because I think maybe as a younger person, I wanted someone to lead and to change for me. That often then means that when I show up today, I still lead, but it's very hard for me to let folks care for me. And when I think about the ways that I can heal or the ways that I can hold space, it is in community. One of the things that's really been important to me right now has been engaging in culture and in my culture. And I really believe that our culture is a bomb for our soul. I've recently joined this new social media app where it's basically like a party line. People are just yapping all day long. And it's like, oh, here we go again, another social media app. But what was happening in those conversations where people were just jumping into a room and talking about hip hop and talking about sneakers. And there was an entire group of folks chatting about who makes the best jollof and everyone is fighting <laughs> over it. But there's an element to that where I didn't realize how much I missed culture. I missed the chatter. My family's from Puerto Rico. We just speak really loudly and over one another, but there is always an, a this or a that and an argument. And I realized in this solitary space, I'm really missing community and I'm really missing the elements of my culture that have wrapped me in times when I didn't even know I needed it or I didn't even know what it was. So just the ability to sit on my grandmother's couch during a holiday and hear the cousins playing, screaming and whatnot, realizing that culture, our culture, your culture is a bomb for you. So as I wrap up and I'm excited and a huge fangirl of Mia, when we think about self-care or radical self-care, I invite you to check in, check in with yourself, check in with your team, Check in with your family. A lot of the work I do is around meaningful conversations and we do that around health, but often that doesn't happen with my closest friends or family. I don't often ask my aunts or my sister, how are you really? How is your heart? How is your mind? So check in with family, check in with whoever brings you joy. If it's toxic, don't do it. I invite you to measure your work, not just an impact, 
or in purpose, but in pleasure as well. And connect with your culture and use that as the balm for your soul. Make the recipe that maybe an elder or someone had made beforehand and indulge in that or go to the place maybe where you grew up if you're able to do that safely. Do revisit pieces of your culture that bring you joy. And if you can jump on a party line with all your friends, do that too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ivelisse, for those remarks. I think the one line that struck me was when you said receiving help is radical self-care because many of us, as you said, are leaders and are used to doing everything and anything and self-sacrificing our own joy, as you said. So the call to really receive the help, which is the hardest thing to do, and also to just check in with what brings us joy. We really work in really tough conditions sometimes on very difficult issues and then you can forget to cultivate joy and cultivate hope so again so many practical tools there that's just two highlights for me so really honored to have heard that from you as I'm sure the rest of colleagues and friends were thank you and now it's really a joy and an excitement and I know Ivelisse is one of the very excited people to welcome Mia Birdsong who is really quite a trailblazer as far as working on issues of human rights from many, many different perspectives and angles and corners. And so Mia describes herself as a pathfinder, community curator and storyteller who steadily engages the leadership and wisdom of people experiencing injustice to chart new visions of American life. Mia was an inaugural Ascend Fellow and faculty member with the Aspen Institute, a New America California Fellow, and an advocate in residence with the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice. She has been published widely and speaks at conferences and universities across the country. Mia, it's an honor and a privilege to have you close this session with your remarks on the topic. Really welcome and over to you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. And Tanya, the things that you lifted up from Ivelisse's remarks to us are the perfect lead-in to what I'm going to talk about. So I spent the two years pre-pandemic doing what I thought was researching and writing a book. Now, today, I realized that it was really just an excuse for me to go on a two-year journey talking to people to learn how to cultivate and tend to deeper connection and mutuality in my life. And one of the many things that that process did was expand my understanding of generosity. So we are all familiar with the generosity of giving, but I want to talk with you today about the generosity of receiving. So much of America and other Western countries really celebrate the idea of individual independence and individual freedom. And I will be clear that I'm speaking from a very USA-centric perspective, but I hope, or what I think I've learned about leadership is that leadership is often a very colonized space for many of us, no matter where we are. So I hope that what I have to share is relevant to those of you who are not in the US. So we've been given this false story that we should be able to do it, whatever it is. And usually for those of us in leadership positions, that's our work, that we should be able to do it on our own. And that if we were strong enough and good enough and capable enough, we wouldn't need help. And the story we have has socialized us to be allergic to asking for or accepting support. 
Many of us feel like failures if we're not able to do it ourselves. How many of you have felt that feeling like you want to ask for help is some kind of weakness or that asking for support creates a burden for others? This story we have of individual accomplishment and success has so many of us denying our inherent interdependence. Human beings are inherently interdependent. So we struggle mightily to do it alone, to prove ourselves to an unrealistic, unhealthy standard, which was created by what I think of as a form of self-hatred. And that self-hatred is really embodied in white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism. And it's a standard that says we have to earn our deservedness. It says that our value is measured by our productivity. So we really need to start telling ourselves a new story about what it means to be human. We have to find narratives that rearticulate success in ways that say our need to connect is fundamental to who we are. That says our deservedness is inherent to us and not something that we have to earn and not something that we can unearn. It says that we're valuable and worthy just because we exist. When we are stretched thin, like I think most of us are right now, when we're suffering, when we are overwhelmed, too often we think that the answer is to just push through and endure it, to suck it up. We think that we need more time or better time management. And it often doesn't even occur to us to reach for the hands and hearts of others to bring us some ease. So what I learned from the research that I did and what has been underscored by my experience of the last eight months is this. When we're struggling and we do not reach for relief or ask for help, we are withholding a gift. We're denying our humanity. We are rejecting the stake we have in each other's well-being, and we are repudiating our place in beloved community. Fairly early in sheltering in place, which for me, I'm in California, that was mid-March, fairly early on, my friend Sarah texted me and two or three other people she was on her way to the grocery store and she wanted to know if we needed anything. And if you remember, this was the time where we were encouraged to have two to three weeks worth of food in our homes so that we could actually be home and not leave the house for like two weeks. So going to the grocery store was an ordeal. And it was all new too, right? Like the masks, the gloves, we thought we had to clean everything off before we brought it inside. So she made this offer and my immediate reaction was to say no, to be like, oh, that's nice. Thank you. No. Then I remembered <laughs> what I had learned in researching my book, remembered that it's not just about something that I might want or need, but that saying yes to offered support can be a gift. So I happen to be almost out of salt. And I don't know about y'all, but like, I can't cook without salt. So that's essential. So I said, yes. And I said to her, we could use some salt. So she brought the salt, which was like legitimately helpful. It meant that I didn't have to go to the grocery store for another week. But what struck me 
is when she dropped it off on the porch and I was big front window and I was looking through the window as she was leaving and she looked at me and her face just lit up. And I was so reminded in that moment of how restorative it can feel for people who love us to be able to offer something. Just this morning, my friend Jack just worked up the courage to ask me for something. They have a lot of health problems. They live by themselves. Their wife died a couple of years ago. They're still grieving. And they're recognizing that their health is deteriorating because they're not eating well. And they really want to get their health back on track. So Jack reached out to me and asked, with lots of disclaimers and apology, if I might consider cooking for them one or two times. And I saw the amount of courage in that text that it took for Jack to ask me for this request. And I felt honored to be asked. I mean, one, I was like, that says something about my cooking because Jack has eaten my food before. And I was just like, oh my gosh, for me to be able to be part of supporting the well-being and wellness of somebody who I deeply love and who is I think of as not just a loved one to me, but like I know Jack's community and we roll deep for Jack. And to be honored with that request made me feel part of something bigger than myself. So I immediately said yes. The generosity of giving and receiving is, as my friend Retta Morris once said, a divine circle. And each of us must be accountable to keep the circle turning And when we don't ask for the help or support we need, we're interrupting the circle. Now, I'm not talking about healthy boundary setting, right? (laughs) This circle is not about denying your agency or your autonomy, but it is a rejection of toxic individualism. The circle is not about equal reciprocation or earning points with our gods. The alchemy of this divine circle creates more love. It bends time and creates spaciousness. It generates energy. It's not about getting as much out of it as we put in. It's that our input and what we receive is transformed into a wholly different material that's not possible to create on our own. It's like we're spinning gold from straw or transforming paper cups into nebula. This generative circle of giving and receiving creates collective ease. When Sarah did for me, she created ease for me, right? When she brought me salt and she has since brought me oats and coffee, she's creating ease for me. When I bring meals to Jack, I'm gonna create ease for Jack. And it also creates connection. It allows us to know each other more deeply through vulnerability and intimacy. Ruby Sales said that it is in community and in relationship with others that we locate a self we can never find being isolated. It is in community and relationship with others that we come to know the consciousness and the spirit of God that is in each of us. God meaning whatever it means for you. Universal oneness, purpose, things you don't need to define, 
we're closer to spirit, to whatever is divine in us and the universe through our connections with other people. And as we navigate the Russian nesting dolls of disaster that 2020 has been, and that I don't doubt 2021 will also be, we need stronger relationships to survive. I know that if the shit hits the fan, my relationships with Sarah and my relationships with Jack and with the like dozens of other people who I've practiced this divine circle of giving and receiving over many years, but particularly over the last eight months, if shit goes down, those are the people who are going to be my safety net, just as I'm going to be that for them. Those deeper connections may also mean, no, not may mean, I know that what they're going to mean is that when we come out on the other end of this, we will all be the better for it. Thank you. Wow. I did not summarize (laughs) or at least try to highlight. Thank you, Mia. Thank you so much. Like our previous two speakers, so many nuggets, so many tools, so many reminders to counter the capitalist model of deriving value, that to deny our inherent interdependence is to deny our humanity. I'm so grateful we're recording this. It gives us a chance to go back to your words and the words of our keynote. So thank you for encouraging us to keep connection with others and to be reminded that connection is divine. So beautiful. So thank you, Mia. It's my privilege now to hand over the official closing remarks to the acting executive director, Evie O'Brien, and to say goodnight from me. So over to you, Evie. Thanks, Tanya. And it's my honor on behalf of the Atlantic Institute to close our conversation today. Firstly, thank you to our speakers, Ian, Mila, Ivalice, who wove such a beautiful tapestry of insights on our topic of radical self-care. What we have heard today were diverse perspectives drawing from the same spring of humanity from which we can all draw. Thank you, Ian, finding the sweet spot by resetting our brains and changing the chemistry through the simple act of harnessing anger and the intentional use of breath to immediately create psychological change. In awe of your work and leadership that you provide not only for GBHI, but for all of our fellows across the network or the community. Thank you, Ivalice. Self-care is the practice of calling your energy back to yourself. A beautifully crafted and authentic and vulnerable set of insights on self-care. To use the tool as a measure for finding pleasure, mental, physical and spiritual checking in. And our culture is a bomb for the soul. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Mia. Expanding our understanding of generosity, the divine act of generosity of giving and receiving. And the story we have is that we feel like failures if we ask for help and that we have to earn our deservedness. But telling ourselves a new story of what it means to be human. We are valuable and worthy just because we exist. And all we need to do is reach for others. And not reaching for others, we deny the gift of whanaungatanga or community. Thank you, Mia. Thank you to Meg to the Roddenberry, Obama, Schmidt Science and our Atlantic Fellows. Thank you also to the Rhodes Scholars past and present. As always, thank you, Tanya, for continuing to hold our conversations. This is our 10th webinar with over 700 participants over the period with such grace and generosity. As the 10th webinar in this Fellowship of Fellowships series in response to COVID, it continues to be a gift to connect and learn with each other in itself an act of radical self-care. 
let's continue those connections for greater impact in the work that we do.